Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, a few customary reminders for you before we get started. Please lock your doors, close your windows, cover your mirrors, throw down a little salt, light some tobacco with us. We're back, and this week, this month rather, one of my best friends and a cherished guest here, you all know him, Mike. What's up, man? Paz, how are you? Paz, I think we're going to have a really good time with this one, and I think the audience is really going to appreciate the topic. And, you know, I think they will too. And just let me say right at the front before we even tell them what we're doing, it's topics like this, one of the very many reasons I cherish you and your friendship so much, because I will come at this stuff from an insanely esoteric, absolute schizo poster perspective. And then you'll show up and be like, yeah, no, dude, these guys are absolutely fucking evil, but you've got the kind of evil they are wrong. And I love that. So, yeah. Um, so with, with that intro having been said, why don't you lead us off with, with what we're talking about today? Yeah, we are here to talk about the Knights Templar. Some of them, or some of you, might believe them to be a shadowy organization that's been directing all Western esoterica for the last thousand years. But Mike has come to give us a simpler explanation. They are not demon-worshipping mages or alchemists or guardians of the Holy Grail. Actually, they're just the devil spawn that created the military-industrial complex. How's that for esoteric? So, it absolutely is alchemical in a very different way, and that's why I'm so excited for it. So what, what I want to do here is I want to present a kind of alternative theory on a kind of set of known facts, uh, and not so much as to kind of what happened and what were these guys up to, because everything that we're going to talk about is kind of proven in the reality of what happened. Um, the thesis that I want to present to you here, you and your audience specifically, Paz, is the Knights Templar and their, their place within the broader crusading phenomenon as a kind of 
laboratory of capacity of a certain kind of call it institutional skills uh, that would come to kind of define what we would really consider the modern state and military industrial complex, uh, things like the ability to project power, the ability to transfer large amounts of money, the ability to secure long distance trade networks. Um, if you look at it, this is one of the early areas where you really see this start to come into play from a kind of non-state source, right? Um, and a lot of this has to do with kind of the, the nature and the development of the European feudal structure. Um, and we don't necessarily have to get into that because I don't necessarily think that it really informs the thesis of what we're, of what I'm trying to lay out here, uh, because all of this is, is in many ways reacting to that structure. And that's what I want to kind of lay out here. Um, a kind of alternative view from a corner, from a, uh, from a kind of top down spooky, you know, guys in robes and, and they were there, right? Like that was a hundred percent. I'm not denying that, but I, I think the kind of. The machinery around that for me is the more interesting part. I mean, obviously, Paz, you know my background. I'm a business guy. Um, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just leave it there for your sake. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Uh, I don't need a mob of your listeners uh, <laughs> figuring out what, what I do for a living and hunting no. me down at, at the office, right? Then, then right. you're not going to get any more podcasts. Anyway. <laughs> So I think that there's a really interesting phenomenon, kind of not what's going on at the top in this kind of spooky layer, what is going on in the kind of machinery that supports that spooky layer. Um, so if it's okay with you, Paz, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a few minutes and kind of lay out what the structure of the Knights Templar kind of came to be um, after the kind of murky period of, of the first 30 years of, you know, the, that's the real legendary period, you know, the poor knights, two guys on horses, yada, yada, yada. But there was a lot of work put in to take it from that to kind of that that powerhouse upon which you could that secretive powerhouse uh, that that hydra upon which you could project and, and you know often be correct. Again, I, I want to stress this, right? Like I don't know everything of what's going on, but I, I want to take what we do know and I want to make some extrapolations here. I think we're going to have some fun doing it. Uh, so in order to do that, let me lay out the kind of structure of what they became. Once it was kind of established that this wasn't just a fly-by-night thing of, of a couple guys LARPing. Uh, so th the structure of the kind of Knights Templar, at least as to how they behave in the world as an institution, I'm not talking about kind of what they do on the inside or spooky rituals. I'm talking about the ways that they interact with the world. Um, they kind of have three big responsibilities, uh, three big things that they do. So number one is the kind of fundraising, and this works both for, for the order and for the kind of broader mission of crusading, right? The broader mission of pilgrimage, the broader mission of kind of maintaining that Latin presence in the East. So there's three things. There's direct finance. This is working with the royals, securing those inheritances, um, getting those cash donations, um, going, you know, to these rulers and saying like, hey, let's do a special tax on wool imports. Like, you know, let's, let's levy a special tax on the Jews, sure. for example. Will that, you that would... transfer us the tax revenue from XYZ Abbey because we are a holy mission, such and such? Right. And, and it, what it eventually became, and this is where I think it became really interesting, is that, you know, you had guys that became very good at kind of extracting this stuff, right? So they would come to a lord and they would say, you know, this mill could work a lot more efficiently if you are taxing this grain at the kind of point of sale in the marketplace and there only, right? Um, so by doing this, you can actually lower the burden of taxes on your peasants, make this mill more productive, um, and then you can take, you know, 
a hundred florins a year of, of new taxes, right? Uh, from the kind of finished product, if you will. And then we'll take half of that and you take half of that. So kind of everybody gets more. We introduce a little kind of capacity, a little bit of professionalism, right? Uh, so that's one way that it happened. The second way, and I talked about this, uh, was that these guys inherited a lot of estates, right? People died young. People died without issue in this era. There was just, you know, a, a lot of people dying. I mean, there's this kind of myth that everybody died at 30. That's not necessarily true, but it happened often enough uh, where people dying young of battle, disease, etc., that you would have these large inheritances where, you know, these guys were being willed entire towns. And again, this all of this is happening in a broader environment of religious fanaticism um, and crusader fervor. And, and I don't even mean to measure that, you know, against the standards of our time. I mean to measure that against the standards of their time. Uh, you know, the kind of crusading fever was really at its pitch in, in what we, we would call the 12th century. We're not going to get into what year it actually is. <laughs> Yeah, I'll save that for my next show. Right. Teaser, teaser. So these guys are running a lot of estates, right? Uh, they're generating a lot of produce. And most of this is happening in France. France is the kind of capital of, of Templar power, at least in the West, right? Uh, we'll talk about the East in a little bit. So that neatly ties into their, uh, their second thing, which is like, you have to do something with this produce, right? You have to trade it. You have to get food to these soldiers in the East. You have to get money out there. You have to get weapons out there. You have to get people out there. So they're developing these trade and mercantile networks to the point where those become a kind of plank of their institutional power themselves. So what do they get involved in? And this is what a lot of people know, and it's 100% accurate, is that these guys were the kind of banking house. They were the Medicis before the Medicis. I, I'm going to make an argument later that that maybe they that maybe the before distinction is meaningless. Perhaps, perhaps it is, perhaps it is not. Now, anyway, we'll... if I can ask just one point of order here, you sure. know enough about your uh, medieval and Renaissance history to be able to answer this for me. Were the Fugger banking families before or after the Medicis? Uh, kind of uh, around, but, but after is when they, like their respective peaks of power uh, did not really overlap if you will but but the families were around right the, see the I'm, of, I'm only asking that question because that well, was the a, other there is a transfer name. of banking power from from below the alps to north of the alps which does occur right around the year 1500 yeah yes that's correct so uh, this this thesis and why i'm asking that is these were really the first guys to actually do that prior right. to this it was mostly just trading ransoms and giving gifts right exactly exactly well you know again it had been occurring but on a on a small scale right um and again i'm going to get into this later because the italians are the ones that that really kind of you know stoked the fires of commerce right and really kind of turbocharged the banking element um so i don't know whether you, and this is the point that that I'm that I'm all building towards, right? Is that I don't know whether you can actually disentangle these threats, right? And I don't think that you can necessarily draw neat lines between these institutions, right? Um, and, and this is the kind of sensible, spooky, uh, sensible, spooky perspective, right? That that I kind of have come back with, if you will. So these guys are are, are transferring a lot of money because you know this is at the time when money is only specie, right? It's gold, it's silver, it's jewels, it's gems, it's trade goods. These are the only guys that have the kind of universal credibility within the kind of Catholic West uh, 
so to speak, whatever, you know, whatever that means to you, it, it, it's a loaded term and, and I'm not here to, we are not here. That is not the subject. Broader Christendom. Broader Christendom, yada, yada, yada. And anywhere where a kind of papal excommunication could make business, political, uh, or military life difficult for you. Well, let's just, that, that's the kind of operational perspective that, that we're looking at. Yeah, it's a working definition. Don't quibble right. with us about that. You know what right. we mean, listener. Exactly. Uh, so what else do these guys get involved in? They start to get involved in. They're trading large amounts of money. They know how to spend large amounts of money. They know kind of, they're starting to get their fingers into these networks. So they get into state finance. They get into app, uh, operating the taxation apparatuses. They get into financing wars. They get into securing you know loans for dowries, securing loans for tournaments and whatever else the kind of idle aristocracy wanted to spend their money on. They're the kind of guys who have that kind of first access to the levers. They, they've really, you know, the argument that I wouldn't make this argument that they built those kind of built the levers of state power um, so much as they they kind of came into a time when those were being developed concurrently. Well, and they sort of, to your point here, and I hope I'm not spoiling anything, they were kind of the ones that first realized you could actively touch these things. Pulling that lever didn't just happen by accident. You could reach out and do it if you did it the right way. Not even necessarily the first to realize, just the kind of rediscovery, right? Um, Because this never really went away in the Greek-speaking world, and I, I would also make the argument that it never really went away in certain sections of the Islamic world. And, you know, that, that is one, one thing that I think contributes to this. It's not, it's not quite a myth, but it is again, an entirely loaded term of, of a so-called Islamic golden age. Like, again, it, it is 100% a kind of third world, this myth, uh, which is projecting a lot of things, but, you know, the, truly where one place where it did count was in this, the state capacity was maintained and the kind of understanding of it, again, different, different characters of institutions, but they were there, right? And they continued to operate, again, in an entirely different way, an entirely different frame. Uh, but they did not lose that as much. Um, and, and I don't really want to get into a kind of argument because th- these are things that you can't measure, but, but in many ways, a lot more politically cohesive over longer, stre- over longer stretches, right? Uh, maintain that sophistication of institutions with much more of a straight line of continuity. Uh, versus Western Europe, you, you truly have a huge dip between, you know, somewhere again between the year, depending on where you are, 375 and, and 450 to start. And, you know, depending again on where you are, 800 and, and 1100 um, when, when you kind of end that and you start to see these things form up again um, and shore up. But yeah, these guys are, are, you know, the first kind of group that you can readily identify um, that is kind of working across nations to move these levers, um, that has an understanding of the levers that is kind of working um, on on both a set of formalized directives and a set of informal directives uh, as to how we can kind of use these states, use these political formations, use these institutional formations in order to uh, motivate things in the world in order to achieve goals, right? What is one thing that gets developed out of that? Uh, independent. <laughs> independent armed fleets. Uh, so these guys can move people, they can move objects, they can move a lot of stuff. Uh, this is a key part of their power base, being able to transfer uh, men, material, and money between, you know, the kind of sources of all of those things where, where, they're, where they're made in the West and then where they're spent in the East, uh, keeping these Latin states afloat, right? 
So that leads us to to the kind of third plank of the institutional character is power projection. Uh, I'm going to actually start, I'm going to actually start at uh, the kind of surface level coolest one, but has, you know, in many ways, a lot of implications and, and it's a lot of fun, but it has the kind of, I think there's the, the least argument around it, so we'll start there. Uh, military engineering. So these guys are able to kind of take the building techniques of Europe, adapt them to the terrain, and it is a give and a take, right? They're learning uh, through constant warfare how to build castles, how to lay siege to castles, right? Um, they are exchanging ideas through violence with the Arab world uh, in a way that they are taking back technologies. Um, they're, you know, things like Greek fire things like trebuchets are, are coming back, right? They're, they're being rediscovered because those things are old, right? Trebuchets are reported to have been had by Attila the Hunt, right? Again, the kind of uh, taxonomy of siege machinery throughout the years, it, it changes a lot and, and there's difficulties with translations. But, um, you know, you, you, what you really cannot argue is that there was a, a technology transfer. And, you know, again, you look at it, the military industrial complex throughout its history it does learn. It does exchange ideas, and, and it does test them in the real world. And, and what we're arguing here is, <laughs> is that there was a, la- a perfect laboratory for this to kind of develop, right? Uh, just you know, two societies willing to throw resources at each other to to the sake of <laughs> developing better ways to kill each other. I mean, that wasn't necessarily what they thought that they were doing, but it's one thing that they were accomplishing along the it's way. It's what happened, right? Right. Uh, so then from that engineering capacity, relevant to that engineering capacity, you have these kind of high-skilled fighting men. These are not the kind of elite of the elite, right? These are your guys that are, um, you know, never re- – these are the second sons of big houses. These are, you know, the dishonored – I mean, you know, not necessarily dishonored, down on their luck, noble houses. They, they got a lot – they have a lot of prestige and not a lot of money. They have a lot of money and not a lot of prestige. This is the type of institution where common people, uh, people from merchant backgrounds can join as sergeants and, and achieve a lot of power, right? Um, so what that does is that creates, and most importantly, like they're staying on. Their crusader vows are forever. They're staying in the order forever. So they're developing these institutional capacities. There's a knowledge transfer. Well, um, so hold on. Let me butt in here. Yeah. Is it relevant that that's not strictly true? What do you mean not strictly true? That as I think, well, I know for a fact we share one source in common because it was the yeah. seed of the idea to do this. But in other study, it seems that there was also temporary enlistments with the Templars or that it could be, uh, you could de-enlist. You could, but, but those were not the kind of... Um... That wasn't the core of, of these armies, right? The core that garrisoned these castles, right? Those that, were the life. That's right. right. That's correct. But yeah. to my point, yeah, yeah. even you if you served a right. limited term, you're still going to have some residual loyalties. Right. And you're still going to get this taste of these ideas. That's correct. Yeah, you're 100% right. And that, that wasn't an accuracy, and I'm glad you picked up on it. Uh, because that, that probably does actually kind of strengthen what we're going to talk about next. And so that's the what is also interesting, right? And these two things bleed together because this is still a time, again, before institutions are entirely formalized where a lot of this stuff is very personal. So these guys wield a lot of soft power. There's a lot of kind of gluing together of, of you know these efforts, right? A lot of diplomacy at the top, a lot of keeping these armies together. These armies are not, you know, command and control from the top. They're 
you know, a, a group of groups, if you will, right? Sure. If you wanted to be in charge, you had to have your tent out in the field with them. Exactly. But, you know, again, it's a patchwork, right? Like, states are not states yet. They're, they're becoming states. Um, all of this is, is kind of part of that institutional process, um, that institutionalizing process, the birth of the European state system. Uh, we are not going all the way to Westphalia yet. We may yet. <laughs> not on this trail. Eventually, I think we, we'll probably end up there as as all things. Right. So what do we have here in this kind of institution? We have something that is not quite a state. It is controlling kind of the resources of a state. It is controlling little areas which are, are you know, rival many, many independent states, duchies, counties, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. They're dispersed, right? It is absolutely a network. It goes, you know, pretty much through everybody withstanding in society all the way up to the highest levels. These guys report directly to the Pope uh, and the Pope alone, right? Uh, they deal directly with, with the kings of France, with the kings of England. Um, they're intimately involved in, in state finance. Um, and, you know, this is a source of their power, and it's also going to become quite a big source of their vulnerability. Um, Paz, if you want, to, uh, you want to give me your take on kind of what I've laid out thus far, um, I'm just going to to grab a source that I want to read. I think that already you've built an extremely compelling case because something that I've been fond of saying is that the way power works out there in the real world is still inherently feudal. It's what levers can you touch and how have you made yourself valuable to someone who can touch even more levers. And that sounds to me like exactly what they were doing because they had the intuitive understanding that it could be done. Right. So let's do a little geography. Let's, let's talk about where these guys are, are really tied in and kind of the nature of their power and where they're tied in. Uh, one of the earliest hotspots uh, is Burgundy. And not the, North, not the Netherland part of Burgundy, the southern part of Burgundy, the French part of Burgundy. Another hotspot is the northern Italian cities. Another hotspot uh, is is broadly England, right? Um, in Spain, it looks different. Spain, it's a lot more. The phenomenon is a lot more connected to the kind of institutions of Castile and Leon, and within the Catholic Church. Again, there's you know Muslim, Muslim jihadist states. Excuse me, that that phrasing is terrible and and, and guat brainwormed, and you will have to excuse me. Uh, there are ideologically Islamic states um, that. Their ideology most closely mirrors, you know, the Templars and that of the other Crusader orders and that of the other Crusader states, right? Um, you know, th this is the early kind of the, these guys are flying this, you know, the black flag of jihad. Uh, again, I apologize for the kind of guat brain term there. Not what we're about here. So again, going back to the kind of geographic element, these guys are also in the Low Countries. These guys are also in the kind of Rhine War parts of Germany. Germany, though, um, the Germans like to do things their own way, and the Germans don't really develop the kind of same base of Templar power that, that they have in other countries. In Can other, I ask in, for just a speculation here? We don't need to tangent on this. But do you think that has anything to do with the Holy Roman Empire and the sort of proto-German state powers being relatively more 
distributed, localized, based more around territorial charters than invested in people? So what what's funny is is yes, I, I do think that. And what and what is that? What reaction does that have? To let's just take a quick diversion into the German lands since, since Paz opened the door. Um, so the kind of crusader phenomenon, at least in the German states, becomes localized around what will become the Teutonic Order, um, and this is largely a reflection of politics on the ground and the kind of uh, sparring between the French, the Germans, and the various other uh, the various other you know kind of factions within the kind of eastern states, right? Because these are where all the manpower is coming from in the early years. So this goes back to, you know, the founding of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And, and guess what? That's involved in go go to the investiture con- controversy. Go back to the inheritance of Charlemagne, and you're starting to see how these things get. You know, where the conspiracy fuel comes from, right? Like how people can can kind of find cobwebs where they're or uh, find spider webs when they're when they're actually cobwebs, and find cobwebs when they're actually spider webs right so the germans really don't like the templars the germans do not get along with the templars there's a major rivalry between french uh french crusaders italian crusaders because these guys are all back home trying to play in each other's backyards right Uh, so they carry those rivalries with them over to the holy land and they also get involved in new rivalries when they're over here so there's there's this kind of myth that that you know the crusader states and that were all united against the united islam that wasn't true like there were independent political actors on all sides that were broadly aligned if not necessarily uh immediately working together you know for mutual benefit at all times right there's no question about that and in fact that's a lot of the reason why the crusader states ended up falling apart was western bickering as much as a lack of support Right. Well, there's also another another faction that's intimately involved with the Templars. Um, and if you give me one second, I will find it. Uh, and this is skipping a little bit closer towards the end, but I, I think we're we're we want to start to get to to the kind of what happened in the end, so we can get to the to the far more interesting part. Um, far more interesting parts. Just a quick footnote. The Templars pretty much ran the port of Marseille. Uh, they ran all the traffic in and out of Acre and Jaffa. Uh, the Hohenstaufens did not like the Templars, and they did not um, allow Templars to run shipping out of any of the Crusader states that, that they controlled. But Templars were running all the ports out of Marseille, Barcelona, Pisa, Genoa. They were not running the port of Venice, uh, but the Venetians are, are obviously involved. If the, if there's banking and skullduggery, the Venetians can't be far behind. <laughs> uh, so one thing also to tie in state capacity by by the mid 13th century, these guys are like running pension schemes. They're distributing a lot of money. They're handling really probably you know something in the order of one third of the bullion in Europe is probably, is passing through temple temple houses, um, you know, in a given five to ten year period, right? Uh, so. They're, Pisa and Genoa are really starting to kind of find their boots as really independent independent republics, right? And, and they're starting to fight over over that trade, right? The trade with the East, because as much as these things started as holy wars, um, what made them viable was <laughs> what made them viable to to keep continuing was the fact that they were sitting on top of these of these desirable trade networks. 
So here come the Venetians and the Genoans. So again, they're taking the politics of the West with them to the East. They're getting involved in new politics in the East, and they're bringing those back to the West. And this is all before the French kind of come in, in in their own peculiar French way um, and, and do something what, what I think proves to be really stupid for them. Uh, but, but we're getting there. We're not there yet. So this is reading from Dan Jones's excellent book on the Templars. And if you want to kind of survey of, of what were these guys up to, what do we know that they were up to, um, you know, a, a high-level political summary, I highly recommend it. Paz and I both read it for this. Um, we both, I think, agree that it, that it is an excellent source. So in 1260, the king of Jerusalem, Frederick Hohenstaufen's grandson, Conradin, <laughs> there's a name that, that many of you guys will be familiar with. It might not be that Conradin. There's dozens of them, hundreds even. Mm-hmm. Uh, Conradin was eight years old and more than 2,000 miles away in Bavaria. This is the guy who's holding the throne of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time is entirely a rump state. So again, all this is happening in an environment of broad-scale military failure, a pullback by the kings of Western Europe in, in kind of investing in this, and, and a complete handover of responsibilities to the Templars. And the one thing that they never really had wasn't quite enough resources to support this, given the kind of amount of hostile terrain that they would have to cross in between. So anyway, go, getting back to the quote. In his absence, there was precious little political leadership and no serious armed capability, save for that of the Templars, the Hospitallers, and the Teutonic Order who between them garrisoned almost every important defensive outpost and controlled much of the dwindling territory still subject to Latin rule. Violent rivalries raged in Acre and Tyre between Genoan and Venetian merchants, and their warring factions were backed respectively by the Hospitallers and the Templars, uh, putting a damaging tear in the fabric of the Frankish world. But so long as the Christians possessed the coastal cities as Jaffa, Caesarea, Acre, and Tyre, they would always be a hazard. So you're seeing this, and the Italians here... Are, are just really like starting to turn the screws in a lot of ways all around the kind of broader medieval world, right? The Italians are really coming into their own. Uh, and so to me, that's, that's where we're starting to get to kind of, all right, like what are these guys really up to uh, and, and kind of what, what it, what does it mean for what happens next? So Paz, do you want to give a, do you want to, talk about one last thing that, that we haven't really addressed is what do you think they were up to besides you know the the earliest the kind of earliest form of, of military contracting banking um wh- what were they up to in the soft power dimension you know because i've talked a lot about hard power the, the kind of things that we can observe in the historical and the archaeological record uh, that that wasn't extracted on, under inquisitorial torture so uh, I suppose I would have to say it kind of really depends on what you mean, because the soft power and the hard power are intimately connected, of course, right? By right. having all of this, that's what lets them start playing the politic game for themselves. And that's where they find out that they got a little big for their britches, ultimately. Right. So after they lose Ocker in 1291 this is when things start to really come apart I, I, these guys are, are really like they're holding on to a lot of resources w- without a kind of clear way to motivate them um and you know a lot of a lot of people even more dangerous than them rely on them to get done a lot of kind of really important things 
<laughs> but they've also got a lot of uh, call it favors out. A lot of their ships are being used by these <laughs> by, by these merchant cities, the Genuines, the Pisans. They're being used by you know these guys up in the North Sea, uh, the, by the Flemish. You know, <laughs> there is a capacity here that has to be motivated. The the kind of crusading movement is dead. So they're all coming back, like they're garrisoning Cyprus. They're, they're, nobody really knows kind of what exactly they were up to. They were trying to rebuild. All the leaders were dead. Uh, they had made a, been just a really cascading series of kind of military failures. So it's like, if the one thing that you're supposed to truly be elite at, and I would make the argument that, that they were never supposed to be that, but it became a kind of noose to hang them in retrospect, right? Absolutely, they weren't in- did they were an institution that was there to kind of support the papacy and support the kings of Europe um, in, in their ability to make war in the East, right? Um, what they became and eventually you know, became victims of is an entirely different thing, right? Because people make decisions in front of them. Institutions grow in ways that they don't intend to. Um, anybody who's ever had a job can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and not even... And, and I do, and I don't mean a prestigious a prestigious or high paying job. Every job will have the same thing. What do they call that? Mission sprawl, uh, scope creep, mission creep, whatever whatever your kind of favorite t- term of art is. So let, let's get into kind of uh, the historical villain of the story is the King of France. This guy uh, Philip the Fair, they call him. Uh, not a great guy. No, nobody really likes this guy. You're not going to find a lot of people who, you know, really support him. He's, you know, the classical kind of megalomaniacal uh, medieval despot, right? Um, He's the all, sort all the... of dipshit king that ended up driving out monarchies in the first place. The exact sort of dipshit king that ended up driving out all the monarchies in the first place, with the with the added bonus of, of giving every good modernist all the good. To, you know, post World War II, 20th century reasons to hate the guy, as if any educated, you know, amateur medievalist even needed those. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the guy, the guy's plenty enough of a of a screw up and an asshole uh, on on the lens that he would have been viewed in his own time. That you do not need to that you do not need to project 20th century post war liberalism on top of it. Uh, so he owes the Templars a lot of money. These guys are running all of his accounts. Uh, they know what's going on. Uh, they know that this guy's really not a great guy. Um, at the same time, they're really floundering in, in kind of their ability to, to kind of figure it out a new mission. Right. They're so failing what, at the things they were supposed to be doing. Right. right They've exactly. gotten very so look, good at being who they became and forgot who they were. Right, that's exactly what's happening. So they're having an identity crisis right around this time. Having this guy's having an economic crisis. So they've been vulnerable in the past, but you know their kind of efforts in the east and the fact that they really were, you know, really some of the only guys put really truly putting in the work um, to keep you know that that kind of flame of the crusading movement in the east alive, um, and that that really cannot be undersold that they were you know doing so much of that work right. Uh, but all of this capacity, all of this money, all of this property, it's starting to become a liability. All of this access to power, um, all of this powers, powers access to them is, is really the liability. If, if I can, if I can make that argument, if Paz will, will allow me. I don't even have to allow it. I agree with it. So 
Philip basically sees the sees an opportunity to really do a decapitation strike, <laughs> and he he gets really a lot of these guys um, at once. And this was the only way to do it. He reacted before the Pope. He reacted before the Templars. Um, he got most of their property. He got most of the documents. And and this is where he rolls these guys up in in that in that way. Is it quite secular? Is it quite religious? Um, you know, again. All of the modernist, the, the modernist fantasies of, of interrogation and torture, etc. Uh, you know, I, I don't need to kind of lay out what it was like to be interrogated, <laughs> interrogated in thirteen oh oh seven. To anybody well, who's familiar so with this, hold stuff. on. Maybe I almost do though. It's beyond the scope right. of what we're doing right now, so I won't actually ask you to. But like it's I mean, worth uh, noting uh, that there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception around how that sort of thing went. Right. So so it was a lot more gradual process, a, a lot more sophisticated than it's given credit for in, in a way that, you know, uh, with with a legalism, again, I'm I'm, I'm going to go brain a little bit here, but I think here I think it's valid. Um in a way that, you know, certain things were not permitted, other things were. Um, this is where you see, you know, certain rules around. Oh, you can't spill blood, but you can, you can pull somebody's arms out of their sockets. Um, you can keep them on bread and water rations in a standing cell where you can just turn around, right? Um, you can do a lot of things, but not on a Sunday, right? Um, so, so there is a kind of legalistic and programmatic approach of, of you know, breaking these guys down physically and mentally, uh, not just put them on the rack until they break, right? Like this is being done over months, over years. The the kind of wheel of time turned slower back then. That that's a truism uh, that I, that I 100% believe in. Uh, so you know, all of this is being extracted over months, over years, and you have to remember is, is that this is happening in France. France is where the kind of top and the bottom come from but not the kind of not where as much of the guys doing the work as much as the guys at the leadership level and as much as the guys you know supporting those estates supporting um you know maintaining those merchant fleets uh maintaining the ledgers right uh guys who had gone and fought and and were wounded now they weren't good for much other than subsistence farming would work on these estates keep the books right uh, so the character of the order is different in France than it is elsewhere. Um, in Spain, it is a lot more militaristic. What's left in the East is a lot more militaristic. Uh, what is in the Low Countries is again much more of an elite formation or, around that nitty gritty of of you know statecraft of of business of high level business operations at the time. Right uh, in France, it is not. It is much more of the bottom of the pyramid and the top of the pyramid. So so you have this decapitation strike that does work. Um, and so a lot of these guys, you know, they don't know anything. They don't know. So like they'll admit to whatever to, because they, they're being told on one hand, you're being tortured. On the other hand, you admit it, you know, you'll, you'll go to a monastery, uh, you know, all is forgiven because at the end of the day, the French King is trying to break the power of the institution um, and, and break the kind of guys at the top who know what he's up to and, and what he's doing. Um, and, and have the kind of ability to to open the chest, right? To open the treasure, to unlock the kind of unlock what the kind of conventional wisdom of secrets would say, right? right. Um, which is which is the you know they know who who owes who money, they know um, who, who was sleeping with their squire on campaign, right? Like that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that you can break out of these guys. But but the argument that I'm going to make right now, and I'm going to just come out and say it is that 
what Philip did by doing this um, and by acting before the Pope, and he did try to come back and coordinate it and coordinate rulers around Europe, but enough of the word had gotten out um, and enough of these rulers just didn't like Philip where they didn't take his word for it. Uh, so there was a kind of ability for a lot of these guys to get ahead of these allegations. And, you know, again, these guys continued to serve in, in high levels of capacity as the entire papal process worked its way through. Like the, the first attack um, is the canonical Friday the 13th, October 1307. But Jacques de doesn't burn in, in, until 1314. There's seven years of papal and French inquiries. Um, and it's going back and forth. These guys are admitting to things. And then, you know, after a year of, you know, relatively better treatment they're like i didn't do we didn't do any of that we didn't profane the cross like so they were admitting to kind of whatever it took to get out of, of these scenarios these were the guys that they were getting a lot of this information from were not the kind of hardened core that, that would have been privy to any any of the kind of stuff that they're accused of the denial they're taking of the guys and torturing guys who might have held an account book for a few months and treating them right. like they are grandmasters themselves Right. And, you know, the grandmasters did eventually admit to it was quite a, quite a bit. But, you know, when, when you have true experts in kind of inflicting discomfort and, and in interrogating people and in motivating people to, to divulge things that they don't want to divulge, um, the truth of those allegations, again, is not my – that's not my bag, right? Like I can just tell you what these guys were up to. And kind of what I think happened as a result of of Philip taking a sledgehammer to <laughs> a, a kind of glass zoo exhibit containing wolves and vipers and jackals, right? Uh, because what I what I believe is the result of Philip's actions, and again, all of this has good temporal reasons. These guys are screwing around in Italian politics. They're getting, they're getting way involved uh, in, you know, things that concern, you know, the people that they're really supposed to kind of be working for without really being working for them. Uh, they've made enemies kind of within the church hierarchy for their independence, right? But again, that is all back tied into Italian politics, which is tied into the high German politics. All of this stuff is related. Uh, but again, I think the, the kind of opportunity was from the French state finance and, and getting just too deeply enmeshed into wielding the actual mechanics of, of the French state for too long while um, laying a, a, a foreign policy failure on the door of the French king, effectively. So um, what it boils you know, down to is that common gangster mistake <clears throat> of realizing that even if you're the power behind the throne, there's still power in front of it, too? Exactly. I mean, that, that, that's all part of it. And, and, you know, again, this is at the time when the, and actually I'm, I'm going to back, I, I almost said this is at the time when the temperament of rulers mattered more uh, than it does now. It still matters, but it mattered a lot more than it matters a lot more than, than you know, my systems, my trends and my forces, people's like people like to say, uh, but, but as Paz and I like to say, someone is forcing the trends. Yes, absolutely. So this all, um, so what they do, what, what Philip does, he smashes it in France. Not all of these guys got rolled up. Most of them did in France. They did not get rolled up in the Low Countries. They did not get rolled up in Germany. Only, only two Templars. All the Templars in England were arrested, and every single one of their cases, other than two, were dismissed by the king. <laughs> and and this, this is not uh, – this is Edward II. This is the canonical, you know, 
gay villain of Braveheart, right? Um, and the only reason why he went after two Templars is because he got the Pope to agree to let Piers Galveston back from his exile in Ireland. That's real. That Basically happened. a favor for a favor type thing. A, a favor for a favor. And mind you, this is a Pope who, who is almost entirely a puppet of the French king who is having to really go through big lines, it, it, you know, really spend a lot of capital to smash these guys as a functioning institution. Something for people to think about, too, because that's what we're talking about, the sort of interpersonal politics. You know, the church but, hierarchy was so dominated by the French at that point that it papacy really would be wasn't an even the, the church's own years. doing. The papacy would be an Avignon for the next 70 years, and that would come to be regarded as part of a Babylon, you know, a, somewhat of a Babylonian captivity, if you will. So let's look at what happens next um and let's we can kind of talk through again to go back and put a little bit of a, of a geographical geographical survey on this so obviously these guys are smashed in france and in 1314 jacques de Molay burns at the stake um i'm gonna get the quote bear with me one second So Jacques de Molay, as he's, you know, being burned at the stake, you know, he'd been tortured and tortured, recanted, recanted, tortured, you know, dozens of times at this point over seven years. He was largely a raving madman, but in his last kind of moment of lunacy and defiance, um, in the kind of last council to figure out what was happening, um, he recanted it all. And right before they're about to feed him onto the pyre, he added, God knows who is in the wrong and who has sinned. Soon misfortune will come to those who have wrongly condemned us. God will avenge our death. Then he said he was ready to die. So that was, uh, you know, that's the, the canonical Templar curse. It is not recorded that he, by anyone who was there at the time, that he, he claimed that, that Philip um, and Pope Clement V would be, would be dead within one year. But that's exactly what happened. And you know so that's that? sort of the, that's the sort of thing that gives birth to the more wooey stuff that I was coming into this with. Exactly, and, and I, I, I'm not here to tell you that that the wooey stuff didn't happen. What I'm here to tell you is is that there's a lot of interesting things that you know that happened, and, and may, maybe there's a little bit more to it than that. Maybe, maybe something something that you didn't think about supercharged some of those trends and forces, right? So, so this is the early 1300s this is when you're starting to see the power of cities the power of guilds uh these merchant houses you know the the florentine the florentine republic the pisan republic the genuine republic the venetian republic uh the low countries are starting to flex their political muscle uh brabant flanders all of those places are about to become a major thorn in the side of the french king uh the burgundians are are, are you know becoming what what they were and and the legend and and becoming what we all miss and what we all kind of the, you know, the pomp and the grandeur of what we all associate with the high middle ages, right? The Burgundians are just starting to kind of become this, um, the, the kind of flash of light before the Renaissance, you know, so it starts the birth of humanism, Erasmus, Da Vinci, blah, 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 blah. It, it's it's right. far more. That whole ball far, of wax. <laughs> right. It's far, 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 far more complicated and more interesting than that. Okay, so a bunch of different things start to happen on the French border. 
again, I talked about Brabant, I talked about Flanders, I talked about the Low Countries. The Low Countries start to get really good at banking and trade. Uh, the Low Countries start to really start to feel their political independence. You start to see the birth of these, call them middle class institutions, right? Uh, these banks, these guilds, the power of cities. Uh, you know, again, not quite democracy, but people. Power of people, right? Uh, power of individuals coming together to kind of impose their will against kings, against the church, right? Uh, th this tradition of, of power vested in collective institutions of, of, you know, of voluntary groups of people, right? Com coming together to achieve common purpose, right? Um, can you lay all this at the feet of the Templars? No, but I think you really see if you follow it, follow what's happening around the borders of France, look at something like, um, you know, the English victory at the battle of the Slois. Uh, look at, look at just how, what happens to kind of the French all along their borders. Anytime they try to project power out outside of the kind of core domains of the kingdom of France, look at what happens with Burgundy. Look at what happens with the English success in the hundred years war. Uh, the, the French start to really go on a long run of losses, right? The French state get, gets really taken apart and, and brought low. Um, there's just really a, a lot of, <laughs> of things that seem to happen directly to the French state, right? And, and that's what I think is really interesting um, in that where did it all go, right? Like what were these guys doing? Um, and and where did those specific capacities go? And, and Paz, I want you to stop me and, and, and drill me on these if you want examples or if you, you have any interjections. So for me, Italy, Italy gets most of the banking and the trade. Like that's obviously, that's pretty obvious. The Templars were already there. Uh, they were exchanging talent in and out, in and out with those republics, right? Uh, the banking capacity was already there. A lot of the bullion was going through there. I think that that's, you know, a pretty clear map, right? Of, of where these skills land, of one place where a lot of that skill landed, right? Uh, it was already there, but it started to take off. And, and and maybe it didn't happen, you know, but but if you look, this is still the time when a hundred talented guys uh being infused in into three cities could really, you know, make things happen and really act as a true force multiplier, which was really the Templar role throughout the whole crusading phenomenon was to act as that force multiplier, act as that nucleus. Again, the Italians get really good and really sophisticated at banking. They were already okay. They were already pretty sophisticated at it. They start to branch out. They start to make connections with other parts, other parts of Europe. Specifically, again, another one of these places, the Low Countries. The, the Low Countries start to really flex their political independence, their sophistication, um, and their ability to kind of play state power against each other. The Low Countries also get really good at trade and banking. Um, this is, you know, when you have the, the famous market halls of Ghent, uh, you know, you have all of all the famous canal houses, you have the birth of the Netherlands state system where you have, you know, all of these overlapping rights of this city has this freedom, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. Um, really a lot of small institutions based on, you know, people come, people from a place coming together to kind of defend, defend their collective interests, right? A, a kind of. Uh, militant approach, if you will, to to just life, uh, to to state f from everything from state formation to agriculture. I mean, you can again, geography is going to have a lot to do with it. That before you have um, 
before you have reliable machines to to kind of drain drain that part of the world, and it all has to be done by hand and by horse. Uh, you got to be a hard people to live up there. Uh, but again, it doesn't take much to have an institution of capacity that that can make you know the Ghent city that can turn the Ghent city militia from a, a rabble to a professional force where they can hold off you know French and, and Burgundian armies almost twice twice three times their size, right? Uh, you have a lot of the, these families start to take power. These famous families that you hear that you hear of, you know, their their names are still out there, right? Oh, yes, uh, they that, are in that part of the world. Then they're they're still in banking. England starts to get really good at expeditionary warfare at this time. Um, you know, forty years later, the Battle of Cressy, right? the, Chev- the the famous Chevauchets of the Hundred Years' War. England has pretty much a, a good sixty year run. Um, you know starting from 1340 at the Battle of Slois um, to a, a bit of a lull around 1400. And then then they get good. There's a, a final kind of flash around Agincourt and Henry V. And it's all pretty much downhill from there. Um, anyway, but England England does develop that ability. England starts to really get sophisticated in its trade and its relationships with the Low Countries. Again, already existing, but it's starting to get highly financialized. Uh, the, the Calais staple is, again, a political pawn. Uh, these states are able to use that trade to play England. <laughs> what were the Templars doing in the Mediterranean 120 years before that, 150 <laughs> years before that? <laughs> so, w- what are they, What happens in Spain? The you know the eventual enemy of England. Spain ends up getting actually pretty good at, at military and military engineering matters. Um, they start to really get organized as a state. They start to really put it together um, and you know achieve more of a polis- political sophistication that they didn't really have uh, versus the kind of comparative north, right? What do the Portuguese get? The Portuguese get very good at military engineering. Again, you know, there's geographical and societal factors that are going to go into that because they had their own uh, Reconquista as well. Portugal is a very, you know, tough, hard scrabble place. You, you got to build in stone and you there's not a lot of kind of points to defend, but the ones that that are there, they have to be defended, right? Uh, Portugal gets very good at sailing. Um, not that they not that they weren't good at it before, but they get really good at it now. Um, again, there's a lot of other things getting tied into this, but but you look at um, you're you're popping a water balloon of talent, if you will, and then that's what I think that Philip did, and that's what I think that's underappreciated in the whole thing. And, and I do think it worked its way out in a lot of places. That, that a lot of people are are kind of focusing on the you know, spitting on the cross three times, denying Christ, committing homosexuality, etc. Again, I don't know whether that happened. Very well, could be true. I mean, <laughs> you know, assholes are right sometimes, right? Uh, yes, yes, they, they are. The the HRE picks up a, a lot of things, right? This is this is when the Germans start to get good at banking. The Germans start to develop this this tradition of of military entrepreneurialism, um, of independent power projection. You get these cities that start to flex their muscle, right? This is when the, the famous Hanseatic League becomes a, a huge player. Uh, what does the Hanseatic League resemble other than, you know, one of these crusader statelets that has ports here, ports there, some hinterlands there, right? Uh, again, is it one to one? No, but these things never are. What, what I'm arguing, what I'm arguing here, is that the, these places picked up things from um, you know the kind of diffusion of this power and, and its over concentration in France. What you're doing uh, is arguing 
this you're making the same argument that my style of conspiracy theorist does but coming from a totally different direction you know this is the same exact thing as saying the templars were a hydra but you're making it from a totally state machinery perspective as opposed to right. a witchcraft one right well i mean and again this this i think is is one thing that you and i always have a lot fun with is when you're facing a boot on your neck what's the difference <laughs> right right <laughs> uh so to go back like what kind of comes to dominate the european political sphere that wasn't really there before um and and i'm my argument and and again there there's there, really never will be a way to prove or disprove this, but my argument is these institutions, the Italian republics, the Hanseatic cities, uh, Flanders and the Low Countries and all the polities there, uh, the Grand Duchy of Burgundy, what does all that lead up to? What, what, what does all of this have in common? And again, you can make the argument, and, and you know, I expect some of your list, listeners are going to say all of that would have happened anyway some based of them on the will. geography, They'll be wrong, based on the things and forces. It adds up to about a hundred years of the French not having a very good time. Anytime they go to try to project power, anytime uh, you know the French monarchy goes and tries to achieve political goals, uh, you smash an institution that is picking up throttled capacity, and it's going to have um, and it's going to have weird things are going to happen, right? Look at what happened when the United States smashed the Ba'ath Party in the uh, in the aftermath of the second invasion of Iraq. Some of those guys went into organized crime. Many of them founded Al Qaeda in Iraq. Many of them were rehabilitated into the government. <laughs> and, and and that I think is, is the point here, right? Like many of these guys got drone striked, but a lot of them didn't. And, and kind of none of the more esoteric theories, in my opinion, really have a, a neat way of explaining what they did, where they went, and kind of what it means for all of that to have happened, um, what these kind of structures turned into. Uh, you know, this is the time when these guilds have a ton of power. This is the time when, you know, you have bankers who are worth more than kings, right? Um, this is a very interesting time when you have the the kind of mechanical streams of the, the mechanical engines of history being smart guys doing smart guy things and dumb guys doing dumb guy things. Um, when they're intersecting in a lot of really interesting ways. And, and, and I think really what Philip did was, was a majorly dumb guy thing that he didn't quite understand uh, because he took what, what was a kind of diagonal concentration of smart people, right? Of, of smart people and capacities. And, and you know, again, I, I don't mean to say that all of these guys were super geniuses, right? But, but I, I'm talking about, like, I'm talking about you're taking, what would happen if you were to break up ExxonMobil, right? You know, that, right. that's what, that's the argument that I'm making. Map, map all of those, map all of the ways that that would go and, and all of the ways that, that the power and the capacity and the the institutional brain and everything that that everybody who's ever gone through ExxonMobil has ever learned and has ever brought back into the business, what would happen if you smash that with a hammer? Right, <laughs> right. You'd have splinters flying everywhere. Splinters flying everywhere, right? And I think a lot of these splinters went into 
went into the places because you know you can you can again I'm I'm doing all of this with the benefit of hindsight, but you have the kind of uh, feudal formation era of medieval history, which, which let's let's say that that starts with Charles Martel. Paz, I, I'm not trying to drag you drag you into that. We're, we're gonna probably end up doing a podcast on that one, but I have to do a lot more reading. Oh, anytime, because I am just primed. Anytime anyone says that name, <laughs> so, so let's let, let's call it the the age we don't know a ton about. Late antiquity, call it 400 to 732. Again, we're also not taking a firm stance on what year it is, or what year any of these things happened in, or even whether they happened at all. We're 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 going on the popular timeline here. Okay. Yeah. I will. I will. I will. For the purposes of of explanation, let's let's just accept these these definitions, right? As just working working models uh, sure. that make it easy to for arrange our, our purposes thoughts. here. Yeah. Right. So we have late antiquity, four hundred to seven thirty two. We have feudal formation, seven thirty two to ten sixty six. Again. None of those things are neat. There's a lot of other stuff tied in there. Viking Age, yada, yada. You know, a lot going on. Uh, investiture controversy, the Atonians, all that. Henry the Fowler, well, he, you know. Guy of Spoleto, Duchy of Benevent, you know. <laughs> There's a lot going on. A lot going on. So that ends in roughly 1066. And then you have the kind of start of the crusading era. Um, and you know, some people would call it bastard feudalism. Some people would say that this was the real feudalism, um, and that kind of happens until you have th- this transitional period, which I am arguing starts at the end of the Crusading era. Which, you know, again, the phenomenon of crusade went on, um, you know, well into the 16th century, dealing with the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, and a lot of these Crusader orders, other than the Templars, did survive and did continue to do roughly the same things that they always did in the, roughly the same places that they always did them. A lot of the Templar capacity went there, and any historian will tell you that. Um, and, and they are probably right, that a lot of it just, a lot of them were just like, yep, oh, I was a Templar, now I'm a hospital, or now I'm a Teutonic Knight. Uh, but but the, the, guys, the guys who didn't get burnt at the stake didn't go to those orders. Where did they go and what happened to them? That, that to me is the kind of, that's what I'm talking about. That's what's really interesting to me. Um, so anyway, to to bring this back all in, um, wh- what I think all of this really represents in this era, right, is like you smash you smash that at about thirteen hundred, and you create this transitional process. The black the Black Death happens here, and you then you have you know roughly states as we would understand them. They're not quite as sophisticated, and these happen. Really, I, I would argue right around the time that that the kind of final feudal, true feudal claims of, of the French, um, of the French and English are, are sorted on the French continent. Uh, Burgundy is finally defeated again, a, a date which will live in infamy, yes, at, as, as, <laughs> at, at, at least in my heart and, and in the hearts of some of your listeners. The ones who've played too much EU four with me, I. I've never actually played any of you. Oh, you wouldn't enjoy it. It's a spreadsheet yeah. simulator, but... Yeah, whatever. So you have that. Uh, you have, um, you know, Battle of Pavia could be a line. You have, um, you know, another line that people like to use is the final reunification of Spain. Is it before the Renaissance? Is it after? Did the Renaissance even happen? I, I, I would argue that it, you know, 
I would argue that it, that it started earlier and, and lasted longer and took longer. And the idea that it was this kind of spontaneous flowering really, uh, you know, undersells kind of a lot of the, the hard, dirty work that, that was done to, to get us there. Right. right. Um, so wherever you want to draw that line, but, but here's when you really have states as we would understand them. Uh, this is pre-Westphalia. People would say that, that you know, states don't really exist until Westphalia, but, but they're starting to, right? Um, this, is, this is when you have uh, the, really the notion that the kind of kingdom is bigger than the king starts to really happen. It, it is still much more familial and more personal, uh, but it is not quite the, this, this you know, top-down feudalism. That, again, that never happened. Feudalism was always a... a it always had relationships up and down. Patronage networks are never one way. They don't last long if they are. When they do, that's that's when they get toppled, right? Absolutely. There's no question about that. So the the argument here is that to sum it all up, you have something that was developing, right? These capacities that didn't necessarily know it was happening. Um, and once it did, it was valuable, right? And there were people in there that knew it was valuable and nobody knows what happened to them and and i think that if you look you know with a kind of thirty-five thousand foot view of what happened next you can kind of figure out some of the places these guys went what they did when they got there um and you know you you look at the kind of broader motivations that they would have taken with them um you know you have cities standing up for their rights you have the development of of these these media mediating institutions between you know people and power between people with a stake in society but not necessarily access to the king right um and this is where i i think there's an expression here that the templars were one of the monastic tradition is one of um people would argue that the kind of broader Magna Carta angle, you know, the entire Anglo-Saxon conceptualization of, of what it means to, you know, be a subject and a citizen is another, um, that, that there is a kind of individual sovereignty and individual sovereignty can be manifested collectively. Right. Um, and you know, he, here is where I do think that like, do I think it's a direct one-to-one -one line, but you know, the, the kind of Bavarian Illuminati who came later, who <laughs> influenced the Freemasons, who influenced the American Revolution. <laughs> These guys all knew who the Templars were and what they did, right? But but, but it, it may not have been goofy Satan-worshipping stuff. It, it may have just been, you know... These guys understood guys. how a power network worked and how to keep their mouths shut until torture. Right, exactly. So, so, so maybe there's the link, right? Like, there are all these little institutions of of, of people coming together to kind of achieve things, to to achieve goals, project power, the, the conquistadors, Columbus, and, and this is where you you can kind of, but you, you can even go further back, the the Viking raids, you know, the the kind of Scythian war bands, right? Yeah groups of guys coming together and getting after it like it, it's it's not a new phenomenon but but look at where those guys came from and, and, and look at what getting after it meant to them at the time well, right right and, and then and then then that's where where you can really in my opinion start to see how you can get real schizo with this 
and, and that's where the kind of your own personal scrying mirror on history of what, what I hope we, we have, um, what I hope we're get, we are getting you to do with this episode is to look into that and, and think about what you think it meant um, and think about what you think happened to the, to this power, to this capacity and what you think the kind of impact of history was um, from something that, that we really don't, we know a lot of a kind of narrow slice of what happened. Um, and, and I do think that nobody's ever going to, it's not that nobody ever will, but but this is an angle that that people aren't necessarily going to be looking for, because it, it's the kind of unsexy work that was happening in front of you, that that maybe that was, maybe that the you know the maybe that was the the real friends we made along the way, right? Right. The real treasure, right, was not necessarily the friends we made along the way, but the things that we learned how to do, and and the people that we taught how to do those things. Right. And you know what? For uh, the sake of my brand, also maybe the Holy Grail. Yes. So let's let's. Um, I, you're not. I knew you weren't going to let me off the hook without that. Um, <laughs> so bef- b- before we kind of go and, and have any parting words, let's let's talk about. Let's. I guess I will let you nail me down on, on a kind of rapid fire of, of, of Grail theory if if you want to do it. Uh, I don't see any need necessarily to nail you down, but come on, man. They had to have found something in the Temple Mount, didn't they? I mean, my theory is, is, is that it wasn't the Grail. It was the piece of the True Cross. That that would make a lot more sense to me, um, you know, given that canonically the kind of uh, the Holy Sepulchre of what the Holy Sepulchre meant. Um, I don't. I don't know about the grail, right? Like I, I don't subscribe to the kind of Dan Brownian bloodline theory. Um, Have you ever I, read I know the that... book that he stole all that from? Holy oh, yeah. blood, holy it's, it's grail. Great. Yeah. Oh, it's great. There's a, uh, there's a copy of, of it on my bookshelf. I've got actually. a first edition English printing too. Oh dude, that that's incredible. I found it for two bucks in a bookstore. Dude, dude, that, that is a sign. Like you, you, you were <laughs> It was faded, man. There was never going to be any other outcome for you. <laughs> you were you were always meant to to have this kind of, these kinds of discussions. So right? maybe. Uh, so anyway, maybe I, I do think that they found. The cross, huh? I that's my personal theory. Um, you know, there have been hundreds of of fragments of the cross that that apparently existed. Uh, you know, the the kind of more salacious one to go into a little bit of the kind of pop esoterica which surrounds the uh the templars is that they found the severed head the severed head of john the baptist right yes absolutely Um, maybe um do i think that they found the actual cup you know cup from the last supper no i do not i I will go on record as saying you know what and i'll even go that far with you i think it's unlikely i think it's great to talk about and speculate with but it's probably not the case now let me say this: do, do I think that that you can credibly make the case that they could have at the time represented that they had it and, and use that for leverage? Maybe that was was part of the kind of secret sauce, right? Maybe that was what got them off the ground, right? Because we don't know a ton of the kind of first thirty years of, of what these guys were up to, because a lot of the records were lost. Uh, as to kind of how they they completed to use the the Thelian verbiage, which again I think, given my kind of military industrial complex medieval Booz Allen Hamilton theory, <laughs> uh, the 
this is the real zero to one. Like we don't know a hundred percent how that happens. So, so it's entirely possible that they had a grail that they told people was real. I, I don't want to discount that because the, that is certainly in the data set. I, I would not assign a zero probability to that at all. So 100%. then the last wooey one I want to let you hit you with. Well, let me hit you with is the devil worship. Now, obviously, that's how they were able to put a nail in their coffin, right? Oh my gosh, these people are not just heretics, they're devil worshippers. But to make up something like that whole cloth, you either need an ability to fabricate evidence, or at least convince people you have evidence, that was probably beyond the capacity of the actors making the accusation. Or there's got to at least be a little smoke. So do you think they could get him on heresy and blow that out of proportion? Or do you think it really was just an outright lie? Or, here's my woo, is there some chance it was real? Look, it, it, it can be both real and fabricated, right? Depending on, on because again, the distributed nature of, of the way the Templar system worked. Like, could there have been real devil worshippers hiding within a majority of a good institution? That is absolutely a theory that I have time for. Um, and again, I think given the kind of structure of how power worked, like, you know, that there's, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a grenade at you right now, Paz. Please. What if the whole, what if the whole thing was the Italian merchants going after the French as a terrorists, right? Because the occult, the occult accusations were proven in France and nowhere else, right? So maybe the French were, were doing it, right? And, and maybe everybody else wasn't. Right, like so, maybe like the, Man, the French sect, I actually sect within the Templars was taken was taken over by the Cathars uh, or or other devil worshippers, which would like have the been the ones. right place for it to have all been operating, right? It, it very very well could have been right, um, and maybe there's a reason why the prosecution didn't really work. Now, again, the Templars had a machinery of they had a machinery of capacity to start turning. Um, and there was no decapitation strike outside of France. There was no ability to launch a decapitation strike outside of France. Uh, so again, it is entirely possible that, that this was a, a thing because a lot of the accusations were the same. But again, you have to look at who is levying the accusations. The, these, there was a subset of Dominicans and Franciscans, um, effectively, who, who specialized in torturing people uh, that, that did exist at the time, and they were both used by the French. Uh, the papal inquisitors got different results, and they admitted to different things, but there was a lot of consistency where they did admit to, you know, worshiping a, a devil-like figure. Um, again, this is also possibly where the kind of canonical canonical baby's first Templar theory of, of worshiping the severed head of John the Baptist, because there was, you know... There is a common theme of, of this idol, right? Yes, there uh, absolutely which... is. Whether it be John the Baptist or Baphomet or some sort of goat demon hermaphrodite. Right. What it, it doesn't really, for the purposes of this discussion, what the kind of typology of the demon doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't. Uh, I just get excited about that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, I, I I do I do absolutely think that there that there is possibility that this was happening, right? Like, um, you know, a few bad apples will in fact spoil the whole bunch, and that very well could have been what happened here. I mean, I don't, I do inherently think that it was a political action. Uh, but a, as to who brought on the political action and why, you know, you know, maybe it was, 
maybe this this was you know the the French were doing one thing, and then the rest of the guys were like, okay, well we, you know, there's a there's a lot of machinery here that that we can make it work. Right? Maybe maybe the kind of diffusion of capacity was the reaction, right? Maybe this was a uh, okay, guys. Like, here's what we're gonna do. We're we're gonna disappear. We're gonna go into the shadows. We're gonna make the lives of the French a living hell. We've we've learned a lot about how we operate, what we can do, and how the French operate. <laughs> um, and, and we're gonna take them apart on the borders for the next 100, 150 years. You know, again, all, all of that is is putting a a kind of post facto post facto explanation based on known events now, not necessarily what happened back then, but. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I I wouldn't have came on the show if I didn't think that there was enough to the theory to to share it with you. Yeah, yeah, yes, and I think there's something to this, especially that very last bit about maybe some internal tension contributing to the final fall. Right. That really appeals right. to me because that's something I had never ever considered. But uh, that would certainly be the sort of fracture that could be opened by people like the Pope and French. Right. Especially when the Pope is compromised. Because the, the Pope is trying to stay out of the kind of bloodthirsty Italian politics at the time. Italian politics didn't get less bloodthirsty after that. No, not at all. Gosh, uh, I feel like we could actually keep going on this for a while yet, we but we are already... Over my we, usual length by almost half an hour. <laughs> all right. Well, I think um, I guess my my final point here, uh, and, and I want to issue a little bit of a challenge to the audience here, is to again really really put on your thinking hats um, and, and kind of come up with your own theory of of what might have happened and, and how it might have happened, um, and, and to really challenge your preconceived notions. That, and once um, you do, at me relentlessly with them. Yes. At 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 Paz, please. Uh, but challenge your preconceived notions of of not necessarily that there are shadowy cabals moving in smoke filled rooms of of what the guys in these smoke filled rooms in these shadowy cabals are doing. Um, they're not necessarily effectuating child sacrifice uh, in in every time. In a lot of times, they they are effectu they are effectuating the battle of of the Slois. They are effectuating, uh, you know, the chevauchees of of Henry the Fourth. Uh, I mean, of Henry V, excuse me, they're effectuating the, you know, the chevauchets of, of Edward III, the Black Prince. Um, they're effectuating, you know, the, the Brabantese being able to really be a thorn in the side of the French. They're effectuating perhaps the Battle of Pavia all, all the way in, into the 16th century. Um, think about kind of the different things that, that these guys could be doing, given what they know um, and what they know how to do and what they've been trained how to do and what they've you know just learned on the job by doing it's not necessarily always going to be the, the kind of esoteric and, and i think this is this is the synthesis of 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 paz and i um is that maybe that i'm guilty of ignoring and, and paz is always trying to, to drill into me the esoteric process might very well be happening right in front of you what, what you think is normal something might be going on there and and that's the theory that we've presented here, uh, is that there's an undercurrent of the normal things that happened that was animating it. That didn't necessarily wasn't the, the sole cause of what happened next, uh, but you can start to see fingerprints of it if you look at these things with, with a different lens, right? Sure. And, and that's, 
that's the point I want to leave on. Yeah, and if there's something to take out of this episode, it's that while you say I'm drilling that into you, the counter can be true too, and I can be guilty of ignoring the extremely normal and still yet a conspiracy stuff. Exactly. I think I'm actually pretty good at seeing that, but you know, I know for a fact there's times I miss it, and this is a great example. This whole talk when you presented this idea to me, it was a real eye opener. Well, I'm glad, and I hope the audience enjoys the show. And I, I apologize for the length of this episode, but oh no, don't! But, uh, it's wonderful. <laughs> we we we'd been deep in in, in the prep minds uh, for for months on on this one. Yes, yes, we have. And uh, before I allow you to excuse yourself, something, anything you want to plug for me, something you want to promote, something you want people to um, go buy as a thank you for your time. I, I want you to, I want you to go buy uh, Scarlet Thread Society and and Timeline Earth and and Paz merch. That's what I want you to do. Oh, that's perfect. Paz, Paz isn't going to shill his own his own merchandise, so I'm going to shill it for him. If, if you if you like what I've done on his show, um, support him because. It, I I I come on here because I have fun with Paz, and you know, um, if if you're having fun with what we're doing, uh, try try to pay it back to him. Well, bless you for saying so. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for spending this Bye. time on your Saturday. I know it's time you could have to yourself, but on behalf of the audience, they appreciate it, and I appreciate it even more, King. My pleasure. <laughs>